Pleasure to welcome our first guest to the program today. He is a professor of neurology, chemistry, and pharmacy at the University of Toronto. He is the director of the Kremble Research Institute with the University Health Network in Ontario. He is Donald Weaver, a PhD, MD, who is the author of a piece that we really enjoyed this week at theconversation.com entitled, Why Don't We Have a Cure for Alzheimer's? Dr. Donald Weaver, good morning, sir, and welcome to the program. And good morning to you. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Let's talk, first of all, if you don't mind, Dr. Weaver, take us right back, hold my hand, right back to square one. What is Alzheimer's, and how long have we known of what it is? Alzheimer's is one of the types of dementia. So all Alzheimer's is dementia, but not all dementia is Alzheimer's. Okay. It, it accounts for about 75% of the dementia that we do have uh, in Canada and in North America. But it is a chronic progressive brain condition in which the individual loses a lot of their normal abilities, and ultimately they lose the ability to recognize family, friends, uh, and to care for themselves. Uh, it's, it's called Alzheimer's disease because uh, a pathologist, uh, a physician by the name of Alzheimer, first described it uh, 115 years ago. Uh, but, of course, it existed long before that. Mm-hmm. People have been suffering from dementia. Um, it's a bit more obvious nowadays because we have more people making it to their older years than perhaps 300 years ago. Sure. Uh, but it's been around a long time, but uh, it's only enjoyed the name Alzheimer's for about 115 years. Dr. Weaver, this is Brain Awareness Week across Canada, the last weekend of that dedicated week. So we thought we would spend a little time on, on Alzheimer's on the program today because, to the best of my knowledge, sir, it represents one of the, uh, one of the most common uh, neurological disorders among Canadians. In other words, it's quite prevalent. It is indeed. Uh, Right now, there are probably about 470,000 Canadians uh, suffering with uh, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, What what I find most distressing is that uh, we're picking up 76,000 new cases per year now in Canada as it takes off. Uh, So we're picking up about nine an hour uh, across this country, uh, that's uh, that's a lot, and it's costing us over $8 billion to our economy. So it's huge. I have no problem believing the numbers involved in this one. Sir, how, do, how does a person get, and I know that's a, it's an odd word to use, but how does a human being get Alzheimer's? Um, good question. So, you know, a, a lot of people ask me, is this is this run in families? Mm-hmm. And, and sorts of questions like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first of all, uh, can it run in families? Yes, but that's actually quite uncommon. Uh, only about 5% of the cases really have a strong family history. The majority of them just happen. Wow. Uh, you know, bad luck. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, now, there are risk factors for it. Uh, and that, that is not appreciated. Uh, and uh, an excellent study came out from in the medical journal called The Lancet last summer, and it identified risk factors. The, the downside is, is that you have to start avoiding these risk factors when you're about 20 years old oh. um, so that you don't get Alzheimer's when you're 70 years old. Uh, and a number of the risk factors are fairly obvious. Um, repetitive head trauma. Uh, having your head um, hit repeatedly is not a good thing, especially if you're trying to avoid Alzheimer's disease. Alcohol abuse, obesity, diabetes, uh, all of these are, are risk factors uh, that go along with an increased likelihood of having Alzheimer's at, at a later age. Um, 
there's another interesting one, which is level of education. It turns out that the farther you went in school, the more likely that is to protect you from getting Alzheimer's in future years. That is interesting. So, yeah, it is interesting. So in terms of, of what it actually is, though, in this incredibly complex organ inside our skulls, in the brain, as, mm-hmm. I, as I understand Alzheimer's, Dr. Weaver, it's simply the brain breaks down so that all of those circuits that operate normally begin to disconnect. And so you have portions of the brain unavailable to other portions of the brain. Am I oversimplifying things? No, I thought that was actually a really good explanation. The, um, uh, a normal adult brain uh, weighs, you know, about 1.3, 1.4 kilograms. Uh, the individual who regrettably has ultimately died of Alzheimer's their brain weighs about 800 grams, so wow. they've lost half a kilogram of brain. Mm. Uh, it just shrinks. Uh, and uh, so there are a number of processes happening in the brain which are, are killing off the brain cells. And then, as a result of this, the, the connections that you were referring to disappear. Yeah. Uh, and they can't make those connections from one part of the brain to the other, which are so crucial in being able to identify your spouse, uh, and carry out the activities of life. One of the things that you talk about in this excellent piece that you wrote, it's a really good piece, Donald. Well, thank you. Uh, it, it, one of the things you talk about is the money. Uh, dis- yes. Despite the fact that there are half a million Canadians this morning dealing with Alzheimer realities, the funding that we dedicate as a society to Alzheimer's research compared to cancer or heart disease or even COVID-19, you point out, is, yes. is quite dramatically different. That is true, uh, and this has had a spotlight focused on it. A lot of my patients are going, you know what? A year ago, we hadn't even heard of COVID, or we are just starting to hear about it. Now we have multiple vaccines, and so much has happened. Yep. Alzheimer's has been around for 115 years, and you've got nothing. Mm-hmm. Like, why? Uh, and there are lots of reasons, certainly, but the funding is one. And um, if you compare it to cancer, you compare it to heart disease or HIV-AIDS, it tends to clock in about one-tenth of the funding of these other major illnesses. And yet the numbers of Canadians affected by uh, Alzheimer's are in many cases equal to the numbers of Canadians affected by those other illnesses. Most definitely, yes. So then what, is, uh, what has been the problem up until now, Dr. Weaver, in terms of uh, creating the kind of demand for those funds that is really necessary to get at the core of Alzheimer's research? There's a lot of factors that contribute to this. Uh, unfortunately, I think one of the leading factors is that there's this perception that Alzheimer's is only a disease that affects the very old. Right. Um, and uh, so, you know, raising money for a disease that affects 80-year-olds isn't like raising money for a disease that affects 8-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a different component to this. However, you know, that's also not, not correct because 10, 12% of people with Alzheimer's uh, definitely got it in their younger years. And, I mean, in my own practice, I have people in their 40s with Alzheimer's disease. So it is not exclusively uh, a disorder of, of uh, the very old. Interesting. You talk about Alzheimer not necessarily uh, being dementia or dementia not necessarily being mm-hmm. Alzheimer's, but they are all in the same corner or under the same categorical umbrella. What is the difference between Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia? Is Alzheimer's the most acute or severe? 
Uh, no, there's actually, for example, mad cow disease um, or right. Jakob Kreutzfeldt disease, mm-hmm, which progresses mm-hmm. really quickly. That, that's a much more severe form of dementia. Uh, Alzheimer's is the most common type that we have, representing three quarters of the dementia that we have in Canada. The, the, probably the second most common type uh, is called a vascular dementia people who've had uh, a lot of tiny little strokes um, uh, and they've done sufficient brain injury across multiple areas of their brain that the end result um, is that, uh, you know, the brain isn't functioning the way that it should. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, lots of other types of dementia uh, as well. Dementia that goes along with Parkinson's disease. Right. Dementia that uh, goes along with a number of other types of, of much less common brain disorders. But uh, the line share are indeed Alzheimer's. Indeed. Uh, is, there, is there a trigger uh, in the human condition that causes, you can sort of see, oh, this person is, uh, we're done here. Here, it, it's definitely we've crossed a line. In other words, um, it's such a variable disease. Um, everyone is different. The uh, you know because I always have families going. You know, can can you predict this course now for for mom or for dad? And um, you know, uh, every one of us started off with a hundred billion neurons. It's just variable from person to person. That's a tough call. Yeah, okay. It is a pleasure to have Dr. Donald Weaver with us on the program to begin uh, this uh, incredible Saturday morning. Dr. Weaver is a professor of neurology, chemistry, and pharmacy at the University of Toronto. He's also the director of the Kremble Research Institute with the University Health Network. And he wrote a piece recently at theconversation.com entitled Asking a Perfectly Fair Question. Why don't we have a cure for Alzheimer's disease? It is brain Awareness Week across Canada. And uh, let me quote uh, Dr. Weaver from your article, if, if I may, for just a moment. The human brain is extremely complex, and Alzheimer's disease is the most complex disease of the brain. Alzheimer's is also a disease of the entire family, causing anxiety, depression, and exhaustion in caregivers and loved ones, exacting a disproportionately high socioeconomic cost. And that's the part we don't think about as often as perhaps we should. We have considerable sympathy for individuals dealing with Alzheimer's, no question about that, Dr. Weaver, but we tend to forget the spillover effect of the people in their lives that are affected by this and quite, quite strongly affected. Yes, it is. I, I always say you're not treating a patient, you're treating a family. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Weaver, the big problem, and you deal with this as, to some degree in, in your article, and I'd like you to spell it out for, for our friends listening this morning. The problem with Alzheimer's, and you said at the outset of this conversation, we've known it because Mr. or Dr. Alzheimer pointed it out specifically 115 years ago. One would think after well over a century of research and understanding to some extent what we're, ha- we're dealing with here, uh, the there might have been some kind of pharmacological uh, conclusion arrived. We've, we've got all sorts of drugs at our disposal, and yet we haven't found a combination of drugs that works for Alzheimer's, or have we? Are we on the cusp of anything? I like to think that I'm pathologically optimistic. Uh, (laughs) I like that attitude. And that we are on the cusp. Um, We've been failing a lot. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't look at these as necessarily failures. I look at these as lessons. Sure. Um, you know, uh, getting to the, the cure is tough, and there's a lot of different routes we could be taking. And every time we fail, there's one more route we know we shouldn't take. Sure. Um, and so it's, it's helping us hone in. Um, but, you know, as, as it says in the article, that there's lots of, there's lots of struggles. We still don't know 100% what the underlying cause is. Mm-hmm. If it comes from abnormal proteins clumping up in the brain, if it causes if it's coming from inflammation, or, or a combination of, of multiple things. So, you know, that's, um, uh, that has been a, a real impediment in, in rapidly coming to something that's truly effective. Dr. Weaver, I have to ask you this question because I, I saw a commercial last night. I was doing some homework about you, and I saw a commercial on TV last night uh, on one of those American channels where they, of course, have drug ads every second commercial. <laughs> yes. and, and this one features a sort of an older-ish, probably 65-plus couple, very contented-looking people who take some kind of pill every day to uh, somehow or another enhance their brain capacity. It, it suggests, without ever saying it, because they don't think they're allowed to say it, it, it suggests, however, if you take one of these pills every day, you you're likely to help yourself offset Alzheimer's. Now, they don't say that, but that's what they imply. Is there a drug out there available to us that might help offset Alzheimer's? No. Um, and my God, if there was a drug that helped our brain, I'd be swallowing it. Sure. Um, the, um, uh, so, yeah, there's, there's lots of ads out there, and there's lots of ads for brain tonics and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Nothing has ever been shown to work. Uh, and, um, you know, right now that's more wishful thinking than reality, unfortunately. Okay, but then again, you understand why the drug maker is doing quite well. Oh, Thank you very course. much. Because I mean, pe- people are desperate. Sure. People are desperate, understandably so. Uh, so what uh, is the uh, research community here in Canada focused on in, in terms of uh, uh, drugs that might work? What, what's the plan in terms yeah. of, 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 of how, to, how, how to cut this off? The, uh, well, thankfully, the research community uh, in Canada is uh, using a number of different approaches. As mentioned, there's uh, strong efforts going on uh, still on the two big proteins. One's called amyloid, one's called tau, that may clump up and, and cause this disease. So there are people targeting that. There are people targeting the fact that this could be due to inflammation uh, in the brain. Uh, and there are multiple other different approaches. Uh, and all of these are receiving uh, a degree of study. Uh, and, you know... Um, I like to compare it to high blood pressure. If you go and you have high blood pressure, your, your physician doesn't say, I will give you the pill for sure. high blood pressure. There's lots of them. Mm-hmm. And you know, ultimately, we may end up with people taking combinations of drugs for this, uh, for Alzheimer's as well. Well, and you point out in the article, and I think it's fair, because I, I think the public perception, and it's so good to have you with us this morning, Donald, it just sort of bursts a few of those public uh, public perception myth bubbles. Uh, mm-hmm. But one of them is, of course, that it is a disease exclusively of older people, and that's not necessarily the no, case. No. And, and as you point out in the article, as your research goes forward, if a person who's 52 has Alzheimer's, uh, and uh, would the drugs that you would give to that 52-year-old be exactly the same as, say, an 82-year-old person also dealing with the onset of Alzheimer's? Could it be two completely different things or two versions of the same thing? We're still kind of in the dark on a lot of those details, aren't we? 
Uh, most definitely. The question is, is it Alzheimer's disease or Alzheimer's syndrome? Uh-huh. Uh, there are a couple of diseases that are all wrapped up into one, and we still don't have the ability to differentiate them. You know, and, and I suspect that they are, because as you pointed out, the 52-year-old is quite different from the 82-year-old with Alzheimer's, even though we both say that they have Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. In terms of the cost, you talked about billions of dollars at the beginning of our conversation, Dr. Weaver. Let's go back to that for a moment mm-hmm. and talk about the cost to the Canadian healthcare system. We're, we're going to be dealing with a federal budget in a couple of weeks that's going to be absolutely just mind-boggling in, 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 in terms of what the government of Canada has done to deal with COVID-19, not all of which, of course, has been drugs. But nonetheless, um, let's talk about that for a few moments, if you don't mind. The cost that Alzheimer's exacts yearly yeah. from the and, Canadian and that's system. that's a difficult number to wrap your head around because yeah, one in five families have people caring for someone with Alzheimer's, so what's the lost productivity sure. you know, from that? What's the financial impact on, on the caregivers and the family? Uh, and so that's why you know, uh, probably a conservative estimate is that Alzheimer's costs Canada 8 to $10 billion, uh, a year. Mm. And uh, that's not just caring for the individual, as I said. That's, that's a, you know, a wide uh, appreciation uh, of the diverse uh, impact that this has on our economy. And you would think, Dr. Weaver, with that kind of cost predictable on an annual basis, it would be even more of an incentive for healthcare professionals <laughs> you to, think. To, yeah. get, to get at it, to get at the root causes and, and lower those uh, cost numbers. Yes. Um, you know, sometimes I think Alzheimer's has a bit of a PR problem. <laughs> right, sure, of course. <laughs> It, it, it's. Uh, it, it, I wonder, though, in terms of impressing. This is Brain Awareness Week. You yep. uh, you have an opportunity, and of course, the healthcare professionals and the politicians that they work with are a little preoccupied this year uh, with, with getting uh, through variants and other COVID nineteen mm-hmm. realities. But in terms of impressing upon those who can uh, allocate funds to to provide more to Alzheimer's research, are you hopeful that this this campaign will be productive in that regard. Yes. Yes, I am. And, and, you know, COVID has even helped that because, um, you know, as COVID has caused disproportionate havoc in our long-term care facilities Mm -hmm. and in people with dementia, it has once again drawn attention to dementia as one of the other pandemics that we are dealing with. Um, And uh, because of this, uh, I think there is room, once again, for hope, not just in Canada, but worldwide, uh, that uh, increased interest will be paid on Alzheimer's and dementia. Indeed. I-, I would like to commend your article to our listeners, Dr. Weaver. It's at theconversation.com, friends, and it's entitled, Why Don't We Have a Cure for Alzheimer's Disease? It's a, it's a quick read, and it's a very informative bit. Dr. Donald Weaver from the University of Toronto Health Network is the author and has been our guest. Dr. Weaver, a real pleasure to speak to you this morning. Sir, I'd like the opportunity to do so again. I would look forward to that. Thank you. That's my pleasure. Thanks for being with us. Have a great weekend and happy spring. (laughs) And happy spring to you, too. Stay optimistic, Donald. We appreciate your work, sir. We're going to talk about a conference coming up to save BC's tourism industry. Maya Lang is with us. Ms. Lang is the Vice President Global Marketing with Destination BC, one of the big players in the 2021 BC Tourism and Hospitality Conference. Maya Lang, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. 
Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure, Maya. This uh, conference, it'll be a virtual conference uh, uh, in which all of the players in the BC hospitality industry get together to formulate a game plan for 2021. And I suppose look back on, on a pretty hideous year that has been. We're 12 months into this and not a lot of survivors, Maya. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been the last time we got together was literally twelve months ago. Exactly, uh, we have an annual an annual conference, and so it was a chance to uh, look back and kind of reflect on on the year and and obviously you know the significant impact that the COVID nineteen uh, virus has had on the BC economy and and on tourism businesses in particular, um, but also a chance to look forward and 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 look ahead to see you know what what can we expect for for the years ahead in, for tourism in BC. And and what what are the expectations? I mean, we're not we're not likely to have open borders. Uh, per, I'm thinking probably until Labor Day. I'm sure many are more hopeful of opening the borders earlier. A lot of it depends on the vaccination rollout in the United States, doesn't it, Maya? because a lot of our tourism dollars come from down there and their vaccination program is way ahead of ours. So there might be some hope for a border opening before Labor Day. Are you optimistic? Well, you know, I, I am optimistic, I think, but I, but I also feel very confident that BC residents and Canadians will have a, summer, a chance to, uh, to travel this summer. And in fact, when we look at actually where the vast majority of the uh, spend and tourism takes place, it's actually by domestic uh, Canadians. Mm-hmm. So it's about 60, 65% of, of tourism revenue is generated from, from Canadians. Uh, and this will be an opportunity for us British Columbians to get to know our province uh, even even more so um, and, uh, and an opportunity for us to, to explore some of those places we've wanted to go for a long time. Um, and then I know that there's obviously very many businesses that are very reliant on that international traveler. Sure, yeah. But the, you know, we expected that you're, you're right. I mean, what, we've got three different scenarios that we put together and, and two out of those three don't expect uh, a border opening until, uh, until the second half of, of uh, 2021. That's so, right. Uh, a challenge for some businesses, definitely, but hopefully an opportunity as well to, to focus on those Canadians and, and British Columbians that want to travel here this summer. Tell us a little bit about Destination BC. Remind our listeners this morning who you are and what role, <laughs> what role you play in the tourism sector in BC. Yeah, so Destination BC is the crown corporation for tourism uh, in British Columbia. We work very closely with Minister Mark, who is the Minister of Tourism, Arts, Culture and Sport. And so we are an industry-led crown corporation and uh, we represent the, well, pre-pandemic, 19,000 tourism businesses that, uh, you know, that uh, and the communities that thrive on, on tourism. And of course, this past year, we've uh, pivoted to help uh, those tourism-dependent communities and, and, uh, and businesses to, uh, to manage through, uh, through the pandemic and, um, and have really worked hard to, to try to grow that domestic and, and BC, BC resident travel uh, within British Columbia. But yeah. normally, we focus primarily on international travelers. Well, that's right, because you're the global marketing uh, vice president for Destination BC. So yes. in a typical year, your your efforts would be primarily dedicated, be dedicated to uh, overseas clients or potential visitors. Uh, that's not the case this year. So uh, the pivot, that's the operative word still. Uh, so and it said there was a write up in one of the local papers about it. And you were quoted as saying you're going to basically double your domestic advertising budget. Uh, so not only here in BC, but of course, right across the country to encourage domestic travel among Canadians. 
That's right. Yeah. And, and when it's safe to do so. I mean, obviously, we work very closely with the provincial health officer sure. and follow her guidance uh, and, and Mr. Dix and follow their guidance on, on when we're allowed to, you know, stimulate that, that travel from across Canada. We know that Canadians are really keen um, to travel to British Columbia. So we think when uh, that, that travel, when those restrictions are lifted, which we're probably still a ways away from, but when those restrictions are lifted, we do expect that British Columbia will uh, benefit uh, from Canadians traveling. <clears throat> but you're right. Normally, you know, international travelers are really uh, a great source of uh, revenue and visitation, um, you know, uh, for, for British Columbians. Um, you know, just to give you some figures, uh, our international travelers, so the Americans, the Chinese, the Germans, the British, the Australians, they generate about 50% of the tourism revenue that's mm-hmm. generated. So about 50% of the $22 billion that tourism uh, creates in a year pre-pandemic. Um, and only about 25% of the visitation. So, you know, there's definitely their higher yield when they come and visit. Uh, there's many communities and businesses and our cities are really reliant on those international travelers. But this year with the borders closed, there's really nothing we can do except, you know, work towards getting 2022 travel. So this year we're really focused on the Canadian and uh, and BC resident travel around our province. You know, Maya, I'm willing to bet that it, in your office and several other hospitality players, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, when the BC government opened up the website for camping reservations, uh, once again this year, as it exactly was the case last year, the website lasted less than 15 minutes and promptly crashed. Why? Because all sorts of people want to go out. So I would think yes. that, uh, uh, you know, celebrating a, 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 a technical blunder is a strange reaction, but I would think that would be a, a pretty strong and healthy indicator of the pent-up demand locally and right across Canada. Uh, we Even if we can't jump on a plane and buzz off to somewhere exotic or Europe or wherever, we're certainly itching to travel this summer, aren't we? Oh, I, you know, and I think that is unfortunate that the the, tech, uh, the technical issue, but you know, I do, I do think we we have a pretty phenomenal place here in British Columbia. There's so many things to see and do. Yeah. And I always think we British Columbians are notoriously not as aware of what we have. I feel like some of our international markets know more of what there is to do in British Columbia than than we do ourselves. So, you know, we're really hoping this year that we do get that chance to get up to check out our global geopark in Tumblr Ridge, which is one of the largest dinosaur trackways in the world, Mm. or to head over to the northern tip of Vancouver Island, or check out the wineries in the Okanagan, or go to, you know, Nelson and some of our amazing uh, you know, mountain ranges, 10 mountain ranges in British Columbia. Yep. So much to see and do. There's just, so that's what we're actually going to do this summer. We're going to be giving British Columbians some very clear ideas of what there is to do. We've got, we're going to be sharing 10 experiences that every British Columbian should have and really hope to, to give, give everyone a really good idea of things that they want to have on their bucket list this summer uh, and fall, hopefully. So again, Waiting to see what the provincial health officer says, sure. but, uh, but we're planning, you know, pretty aggressively to give British Columbians some good ideas of what there is to do here in our own home province. So, will there be an ad campaign, Maya, that we should be looking forward to seeing on TV or in the papers and so on, upcoming fairly soon? There will be, yes, and I'm sure people have seen our supernatural British Columbia oh, sure. campaigns uh, last summer um, and uh, and in prior years. Yeah, so definitely building off of building off of that, and again, really focused on giving. 
British Columbians' ideas. You know, even if it's you do the same thing, you always go to the same place. Maybe try something new mm-hmm. when you go to, you know, when you go to Penticton or you know the Okanagan or you're going to Vancouver Island. Maybe add something new to your trip, something else to that trip, or go somewhere entirely new. Maybe this is a year you want to do a road trip, or you want to do that uh, a biking trip around the wineries. Um, you know, there are so many wine regions. I believe there are nine different wine regions in British Columbia. Uh, we have you know over a hundred uh, uh, microbreweries, craft breweries in British Columbia. There's a BC Ale Trail mm-hmm, things that you can right. do to check out your favorite breweries. So yeah, lots to do. I mean, really, we have so much to do here. We're so lucky um, that uh, yeah, I just look forward to sharing those and that every British Columbian sees this perhaps as a summer that they get to do the thing that they've they've dreamt about doing. Well, there's a laudable summer task, eh, Maya? Follow the ale trail across <laughs> BC. Yes. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Maya, we wish you we wish you considerable success with this and uh, we'll look forward to seeing the ad campaign kicking in on TV. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning. We'll stay in touch with you if you don't mind going forward. Lots coming up and we appreciate the opportunity to to connect with you and, and have our listeners uh Uh, keeping up to date with the latest from Tourism BC and Destination BC and and that hospitality sector. Thanks, Maya. Happy first day of spring and enjoy the rest of your weekend. You too. Thank you. Bye. There's Maya Lang, Vice President Global Marketing with Destination BC. Rick Zamperin is the longtime play-by-play announcer of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. He continues to be involved with the CFL as best he can, hosting the fifth quarter on CHML. He's also the author of a piece recently for Global entitled, If the CFL and the XFL Merge, Our Game's Canadian Roots Must Remain. Rick Zamperin, good morning. Welcome to the show. Hey, Sterling, good morning. Great to be here. Good to have you with us, Rick. Um, The uh, possibility of a merger, before we talk about details, how likely is it, full stop? Well, I mean, that's the million-dollar question. You know, the CFL and the XFL uh, a week or so ago came out and said, uh, listen, we're we're talking about talking. That was uh, Commissioner Randy Ambrosi's words about a potential association. But no one really knows what exactly it's going to look like. Some think it's going to be a merger. Some some believe it has to be a merger for both of these leagues to survive. Uh, While others think, listen, we can't go, we can't get in bed with an American uh, institution or entity that has not proven to be um, a, a sustainable uh, commodity. You know, their, their first go-round in 2001, they survived one season and folded. So right. Their next go-round last year, obviously with the big impact from the pandemic, it did not work uh, financially or, or really uh, in terms of viewership and, and fandom. You know, the stadiums weren't packed. So the XFL is really, uh, to many fans' minds, a big question mark. Sure. The XFL has been around for a long, long time. Um, so, you know, my intimation is, if, if we're going to get in bed, we being the CFL, going to get in bed with the XFL and The Rock and, and his ex-wife and partner and co-owner Danny Garcia, why should the CFL even contemplate changing any of their rules to placate the American viewer? Yes, there's a lot of television dollars that are going to be spent on uh, you know, the next iteration of the XFL. Yeah. I think it makes a lot more sense for them to adopt the CFL rules. It's much different than the, than the NFL, which we know is a, a monolith onto itself in terms of TV money and popularity, uh, mainly because of the gambling aspect. I think the XFL, CFL, if there's going to be a, a partnership and an association and a merger, it, it has to adopt 
the CFL rules. Well, the XFL is a it's designed to be a short term season to to come in after the NFL ends in February after the Super Bowl and run up until training camp begins uh, in the middle of the summer. It's it's specifically designed to be a different look uh, season anyway. So why wouldn't a three down game play into that de- deliberately different design? Well, and that is another uh, real interesting part about this partnership is if these two leagues merge, what is the season going to look at, look like? When is it going to start and when is it going to end? Because as you mentioned, the XFL started right after the Super Bowl. That's the right. Weekend right after it. So is the CFL or the CFL slash XFL going to start in February? Can you imagine a football game in Regina <laughs> no. or in Winnipeg? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, the Grey Cup in November in one of those two cities is uh, cold enough. Yeah. So uh, that's that's one of the key sticking points that this new association is going to have to figure out. Interesting. So the CFL, let's just zoom in on our game for a minute. Uh, we didn't play a down last summer. Uh, and our, uh, what do you think the likelihood is of some CFL action this summer, Rick? In other words, perhaps like hockey, an abbreviated uh, season uh, with uh, modifications to schedules and playoff and all the rest of it. Uh, I don't think the CFL could survive another year of complete inactivity. I think that would be the end of the league. Uh, How do you feel about it? And also, what do you think this season is going to look like? Well, I mean, uh, here's another great unknown. I think it really comes down to a couple things. Number one, obviously, is the financial situation. The CFL just could not get their ducks in a row with their $30 million. Actually, it was $150 million ask to start to the, feds. the federal government. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that, that didn't fly. Uh, they have to have fans in the stands, and that's going to come down to vaccines. And if enough fans are vaccinated... Uh, by the summer, by Labor Day, uh, that's what you know our prime minister has promised. Um, then it, it could probably work. I, I can foresee especially a outdoors, right? Regular season. Um, I don't foresee this league being able to conduct an entire season without any fans in the stands. They need that ticket revenue. Sure do, sure do. Uh, and uh, interestingly, you po- you pointed out in this article you wrote for Global a few days ago that worth something, some agreement, some kind of deal. Uh, of course, then you've got border issues to deal with, and that's a whole other ball game. That's why we're looking at this weird NHL season because of the closed border. So uh, you do point out though that were were this to occur in any way. Your bottom line would be the three down game must, must survive. I think so. I mean, the NFL owns four down football. So if you're a football fan and you love American style football, you're going to watch the NFL anyway. Sure. I think that there's an untapped um, uh, segment of the football population, if you will, that would be v- in the States that would be very intrigued with how the CFL game works mm-hmm. with not only the, the three down game, but the wider field, the longer field, the bigger end zones, uh, the waggle, the 20 second play clock. There's so many uh, very interesting wrinkles in our game that I think Americans would be very interested in seeing. A lot of what the NFL has put in place in terms of their offensive schemes was born in the CFL. Interesting. You know, we had this discussion at supper last night. You know, many's the time, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, Rick, many this, many's the time over the last, uh, say, 20 years when we've compared our end-of-the-season contests and found the Grey Cup game to be infinitely superior to the NFL Super Bowl. Now, the package as television entertainment, you can't beat the Super Bowl. It's just glossy and fabulous. But as football uh, entertainment, in many times, in many years, the Grey Cup game just blew the Super Bowl out of the water. 
And it still does nine times out of 10. You know, you get a you get a really good Super Bowl, you know, once every kind of three, four, five years. It seems like every year the Grey Cup is just a fantastic game. I'm just talking about the football game sure, itself. exactly. Uh, never mind, you know, the pregame show or the halftime show, but the game itself, what the fans are there to see right. is absolutely fantastic nine times out of 10. So let's uh, let's wrap this conversation up with uh, the fans. You're the guy that's uh, been on the radio talking to fans uh, before, after, and during games for many, many years. What do you think the fan appetite for this is, Rick? Oh, uh, you know what? There's, I think, just a thirst to have football back. Oh yeah. Uh, I know a lot of I know a lot of CFL fans don't want to see this partnership because they see it as the end of what we've known for you know decades in Canada with the three down game. So I think there's a lot of apprehension, a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry in terms of you know the, the what if factor if there is a merger. Um, you know, we got to practice a little bit of patience and see how this plays out. It who knows, it could be a global league where you know we have our nine teams in Canada. There's five or six or eight in the U.S., maybe one in Mexico, maybe one overseas in Europe. Uh-huh. As we know, Randy Ambrosi has, has, has you know, taken to a global kind of perspective to grow the game. Um, if that's the case, great. But I'd love to see the Canadian rules uh, kept in place. Indeed. Thanks for this very much, Rick. Good to have you on the program today. We'll uh, we'll keep in, uh, in touch with you as this goes forward because it's far from done, and I appreciate your point of view very much. Thank you very much, and enjoy your weekend. From the Hamilton Tiger Cats uh, camp and the host of the fifth quarter on Radio CHML in Hamilton, there's Rick Zamperin, longtime Ticats play-by-play guy. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.